Buenos dias! You're listening to the Life in Paradise podcast with me, your host, Brandon Harper. Today is uh, Sunday, December 20th, 2020. We've only got like 11 more days left in this year. Can't wait for it to end. I was thinking the other day, though, what if this is just the beginning? And five years from now, we look back on 2020 and we think to ourselves, we just thought we had it bad in 2020. What we wouldn't give to go back. No, I'm sure that's not the case. I sure hope it's not. But I did think about it. Anyway, you didn't come here to hear my thoughts. Well, maybe you did. But thanks for tuning in. I'm just a regular dude with a regular life and lots of thoughts with no place to unload them. In a world that's becoming more and more politically correct, it's more and more difficult to find places to express your opinions. So I come here, and I do appreciate you listening. You'll find that I have some thoughts you agree with, and probably others you don't, but that's okay. We're not all supposed to have the exact same thoughts. My biggest goal for this podcast is to get you to think. If you walk away from here and you've done that, I've done my job, even if we disagree. One more thing, I don't do pre-recorded intros. And now you know what to expect. So, sit back, relax, and hand the joysticks over to me for about the next 30 to 45 minutes. day outside. I don't know where you are, but where I am, it's about 72 degrees, clear blue, no wind, just plain awesome. I thought for a split second about maybe setting this whole thing up outside, and then I quit thinking about it because surely something would go wrong, a dog would run by and hit the cord and rip my laptop off the picnic table and it would hit the ground and explode, and I wouldn't have a laptop. But for those who know me, you can probably attest that most of the time I would rather be outside than inside. And that's a fact. Speaking of facts, you know, lately I've been hearing a bunch of noise coming from people about how we need Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all these places to do fact checking. And I realize that the people who say that have good intentions. However, it is a terrible idea. It is one of the worst ideas that we could possibly have happen. And here's why. Because anytime you put in a human's hands the ability to disseminate information that they want and cull information they don't want, that's not a good thing. And I know some of your first response is probably... Yeah, but they're only checking to see if it's real. 
I know. I get it. But you have to remember that everything someone does, there's a motivator. There's a reason why we do everything. Every single thing we do, there's a reason for it. And so if you put in the hands of people to check facts, they have the ability to twist in their opinion, maybe delete some information, maybe misconstrue things. And I don't have a problem with people doing their own fact-checking. But I do have a problem with people saying that like Facebook should fact-check and Twitter should fact-check because, no, they shouldn't. We, we don't fact-check the National Enquirer. We just we have learned over time what to believe and what not to believe, what's satire and what's true journalism. And it's important that we continue that. We have to embrace free speech. We have to let people say things, even if we don't agree with them, if we don't like them, if we can't stand them. Here's a perfect example. It tears me apart when I see someone burning an American flag. It really hurts me in the gut. I think to myself, man, could you imagine like everyone's grandfathers who fought in World War II having to stand around and watch that like right before their eyes? Or could you imagine a prisoner who was held in captivity for years in Iran and tortured and beaten and starved? And then he was rescued and he was saved and he was freed. Could you imagine a Navy SEAL who was paralyzed in battle and he's rolling his way down the street to see guys burning an American flag? Is that not offensive to them? Do we not care about them? Or do we just stop things that certain people find offensive? That's kind of a different topic, but you get the idea. My point is I don't like seeing people do things that are disrespectful. Burning the flag. But I do not think we need a law that stops it. Because that's what makes the USA so special, is that we have freedom to do those types of things. I haven't been to every country in the world. I would suspect that there's a vast majority of them that if you get caught burning the flag, you're going to be in some serious trouble. My whole point is that once again, discomfort comes with freedom. And when you have the freedom to disseminate false information, it sucks. And maybe people will buy into it. But on the flip side, it forces people to take a discerning approach. They have to step back and they have to actually think. And they have to put pieces together. And they have to say, well, if they said this and they meant that, but then this happened, who's lying? Whereas if everything were fact-checked, and if it just comes out and you just get to lazily believe it, and you don't have to go to any other websites, or heaven forbid you have to type a few search phrases in. So if everything that comes out, if we just assume that it's 100% accurate and 100% true, how easy would it be for people to start slipping stuff in there that will actually make a difference? And on top of all that, on top of all that, how many times have you had this happen to or heard this happen to? Someone posts something Facebook as a sponsored post for their business and it gets rejected and you're not told why and you don't know what to do and you have nobody to call. But yet here you are trying to pay them to advertise on their platform 
and they just say, nope, we don't want your money, we're not posting your ad, and they don't tell you why. That's because there's some algorithm that picks up words in your post. If a certain combination of words are there, it just kicks it back. And in order to ensure like fact-checking is done efficiently, you can guarantee that there would be software out there to try to figure it out. And so you'd have journalists who try to publish articles or post them that have been published, and they get kicked back, and they get rejected, and no one knows why. And this kind of goes back to what I talked about a few shows ago um, in regards to social media outlets. They need to decide whether or not they're going to be journalists or platforms. Because if they're platforms, they operate like a town square, where people can show up, say what they want to say, post what they want to post, and you don't really have any interference. If they're going to be journalists, then they're now responsible for ensuring that what they say is true. And so, but they can't be both because we've learned to decipher the different types of media. We know that if the New York Post posts something, it's going to be leftward leaning. It's probably going to have some truth to it. If it's an opinion, it's going to be just, just that, an opinion. But if there's data and numbers, it's probably going to be right. It's probably going to be from a reputable source. Quite opposite from the Onion or the Inquirer or the Globe. like We've learned to recognize that that's just satire. It's fake. It's not real. They might take one little fact and twist it into an entertaining story, and we're okay with that. In fact, we pay for that. Here's an example of some uh, statistics that I came across that, although they weren't necessarily fact-checked, they were presented in a way that made them sound different. But they, they made them sound more significant than what they really were. And of course, they're about, you guessed it, COVID. So I was doing some research because I wanted to, to learn more about uh, probability of death by age. And I also wanted to see what, what are the chances that someone dies, right? So if you take, and I don't mean from COVID, I'm just saying th over the course of the year, 2020, we expect there to be somewhere around 2.8, 2.7 million total deaths. That's from all sources, heart disease, cancer, car crashes, plane crashes, everything. 2.7, 2.8 million, somewhere in there. And if you take that number and you divide it by the total number of people in the population, somewhere around 330 million, you end up with about 0.8%. Okay, so that means that almost 1% of everyone in the U.S., dies in one year. Then I wanted to look and see what are the chances are that someone at my age would die of COVID. So during my research, I found a chart. And what this chart showed was each age group, and they, they used a baseline. I want to say it was like, you know, ages 10 to 14. And that was like the baseline. Okay. And then as you go up the next bracket higher, like age 14 to 18, it would say like two times higher, meaning you're twice as likely to die of COVID as the baseline. And then you went from 18 to 22, and it's like six times more likely. And then as you go up in age brackets, the likelihood of you dying from COVID gets higher and higher. I think eventually the highest bracket, it was like 
22 more times. I don't remember the numbers exactly, but they were definitely increasing exponentially. And at the first glance, you know what? Oh my goodness, that's terrible. Here's what they don't tell you, or here's what most people don't think. The first thing is, why wouldn't they establish the baseline at a higher number? And then, as you go downward, indicate less of a likelihood of dying, right? So, for instance, we set the baseline age group, let's just say 85 to 89. And then we go down. So the next group would be 81 to 85. And then out next to that, we would see, you know, you have a multiple which indicates the number of times less likely you are to die. So as you go backwards all the way to the, you know, the 10 to 14 age bracket, they're now 26 less, 26 times less likely to die than an old person. Why is it that we show the death and not the survival? Well, that's probably for a different story, but the answer is because of fear. Fear is a motivator and... I know you're thinking like, oh, surely these people who don't put these numbers out, surely they're not concerned about fear. I think they are. I think they are. I think that they, if I were leading the country trying to manage a pandemic and trying to keep everyone quote unquote safe, and my intentions were trying to keep everyone from catching it, I would definitely, I would definitely present the numbers in a way that scared people. If, if my goal were to keep people from getting it and to be motivated to stay home, I would scare them. Fear is one of the best, if not the best, motivators. Okay, but going back to our statistics. So now we know why they present the likelihood of dying and not the likelihood of surviving. So let's go in a little bit further. I picked my age bracket, uh, 39 to 44. And I found that of all the people who have died from COVID, I think we're somewhere around the 275,000 mark, maybe 300, somewhere there. Of all the people who have died from COVID, allegedly, 5,101 have been between the ages of 39 and 44. That comes out to 0.03% of everyone who's been infected. So I took the total number of infections, which was like right around 17 million, and then I applied that 5,101. So that tells me that of the, of the 17 million people who have been diagnosed with COVID, 5,101 of them have died. That's 0.03%. Not 0.03 and 3%. 0.03%. So it was 0.0003. Okay? Not a very big number. But if I tell you that that number doubles, what does that go to? If I double 0.03, now I get 0.06. That's 6 out of 10,000. So if we, if we, if we double 0.03%, we go from 3 out of 10,000 to 6 out of 10,000. So, so doubling a number, it sounds big when you think about it in terms of that, of double, triple, quadruple, 25 times, 35 times. But when you look at the actual numbers, doubling isn't, doesn't increase it that much. So that's why we have to be careful when we expect people or we want people or it sounds like a good idea to take all the unknowns away and then uh, present it to me in, in a safe way that's, that's honest and it doesn't require me to have to do any more research or any more work to, to validate the standings. 
It's not a good thing. You can see how the numbers get manipulated. And that particular chart that I found was on the CDC's website. It literally had no numbers on it. It just said baseline, death, and then above it and below it, uh, likelihood of dying from COVID. No numbers at all. I had to go find all those on my own. So yeah, so you have a 0.8% chance of dying because 0.8% of the whole population dies every year. Or you have a 0.03% chance of dying from COVID if you're between the ages of 39 and 44. And I know some of you are thinking, okay, Brandon, okay, we know you're an anti-masker. We get it. No, that's not what this one's about. This is just to show you that you have a 0.8% chance of dying even without COVID. With COVID, you have a 0.803% chance of dying. If you're between 39 and 44, it goes up as you get older. Good thing is the average COVID death age, so if you take all the people who have died from COVID and you get their average age, it's 78, which is two years higher than the average life expectancy. But here we are, closing down businesses, making people sit outside in the snow to eat because they're too stupid to take their own risks. One more thing, and then I'm going to move on from this topic. I would be willing to bet a large sum of money that all those people in New York who are sitting outside in the snow trying to stay warm while they eat at their favorite restaurant so they don't go out of business, I would be willing to bet every single one of those people would choose to eat inside. And the notion that we don't think those people are smart enough to make that decision is freaking embarrassing. Especially considering that the CDC says that of all the COVID cases, 3% come from restaurants. I swear there's people that live around me who when they see me start podcasting, they go get their leaf blowers and they just start blowing as much as they can. So I'm going to try to talk through the blowing. If you hear it, you know what's happening. You know what we don't do? We don't alter the handles of doors. Let's just say that one person is born with a deformity and they've only got like a hand and no fingers, but they can like kind of make a fist, right? There's one person. Imagine if the government came out and they said, hey, uh, we need every business in the U.S. to alter their doors to accommodate this person so in case they show up for your business, they can open the door. What would we say? We would say, okay, okay, but there's no possible way that this person can go to every single business and use the door. So how do we figure out to accommodate this one person without forcing business owners to go to the extremes of altering all their doors at a small chance that one person might come in there. I know it sounds silly, but that's on the far end of the spectrum. That's going to an extreme for a small likelihood. So you can take the way that that spectrum operates and you can apply it to COVID. You can look around and you can say, listen, most of our customers are between the ages of 30 and 40. The likelihood of them dying from COVID is less than 8 in 10,000. If they are terribly worried, if they do have something that makes them more susceptible, they can stay home. 
but we don't need to go to these extreme measures that we're seeing in New York and L.A. that are just demolishing small businesses. And the people who enforce these rules, the people who make them, these yahoos sitting at the top in their ivory tower, they don't follow them. How can you be okay with this? If I was someone who was like part of the mask brigade, if I was like a super super pro mask person, I would be furious if these people that are screaming about wearing masks weren't doing it. But that you know, nobody seems to care. They just uh keep doing as they're told without asking questions. My whole point is, and then I'm going to move on from COVID at least for now is that no matter who you are, you should ask questions. You should question what you're told to do. Unless you just like wearing of the mask and like staying home and like businesses going broke, at which point you just say, hey, you know what? I like it. I like wearing the mask. I want to wear the mask. And don't say it's, well, it's just to keep people safe. Because we don't know. There's been one study out there that actually like a a real study with a control group and a variable group that checks the efficacy of masks. It was done in Denmark, and there was no conclusive results. They couldn't say that it hurt. They couldn't say that it helped. What do I say to that? Okay, let's make it a choice now and see what happens. Let's let those who don't want to wear them not wear them and see what happens. I'd be willing to bet another large sum of money. The numbers do not change. Okay, I've been on this way longer than... had intended. So moving along, you know, you hear a lot of talk about phobic, transphobic, homophobic, this phobic, that phobic, genophobic, xenophobic, blah, 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 phobic. I want to dissect that a little bit. And let's just start with the, um, let's just start with the transsexual or, or transgender phobic. Now, Depending on where you live, transgender is is more or less common based on your location. So obviously where I live in Corpus Christi, Texas, there's not a lot of it going on. In San Francisco, California, there's probably a lot of it going on. That's just the way that it works. So for my example, I want to use a Texan because that's just how I, I know how things work here. So let's just say you have this little Texas family and you have a mother and you have a father And they may have some gay members in the family. They may know some gay people. They have no problem with them. But we can all admit that there comes a point in time at which you feel your child is capable of digesting and understanding certain information. And the only person who gets to decide when certain things get discussed is parents of the kid. So if I have a kid and he's playing at my friend's house down the street, they don't have the right to tell my kid that there might be no Santa Claus. That's my decision. I get to tell my kid that. I get to explain that. I get to explain to them the birds and the bees. I get to explain to them homosexuality and transgender. And at a certain point of my child's life, they're not ready to learn about that. In my opinion, I get to pick. Remember, I I say they're ready to learn. I get to teach them. Before that, they're not ready to digest it. They're not mature enough. We have all sorts of ages in our culture that allow us to make decisions. We get told when we can buy cigarettes, when we can vote, when we can engage in sexual activity with someone over the age of 18. 
But outside those rules, we can all agree that it's, it's a parent's job and it's a parent's decision. Okay, going back to South Texas, transgender people are few and far between. There's not many of them here. So it's different. And, and, and some people call different weird, okay? Let's just, we can all agree to that. And if you have a child and it's never been exposed to a transgender person and this child's five years old and you show up to drop your kid off at daycare and there's a transgender person that's going to be ahead of the class, is it phobic for you to say, no, I don't want my kid in that person's class? Or is it just a parent deciding whether or not they want their kid to be around that person at this time in their life. And whatever reason the parent decides that they don't want their child around that person, whatever the, the catalyst is that makes them say, I don't want them around them because blank. We really don't have any right to say that it's a good or bad decision by the parent. Because kids know. You know, they... They see a, a person that's built like a man and talks like a man, but dresses like a woman and has a beard, but long hair and lipstick. And, you know, if you don't live around that type of person, it is not normal. Now, that doesn't mean you're terrified of them. That doesn't mean that you don't want your kid to ever interact with them. That just means that you want your kid to pick up some maturity before they're faced with those types of things that are abnormal to them. Here's, here's an example, kind of. I have a really close friend of mine who's got a son. Son's in Boy Scouts. And, and, I'll, and I'll admit, I, I had to change my mind on this deal. So, son's in Boy Scouts. Dad drops off kid at Boy Scouts. Uh, he goes and he picks him up. He gets there a little bit early. The Boy Scouts, whatever they do, is still going on. And there's a guy up at the front of the room who's, who's telling a story. And he's like a, a transgender and he's up there talking about how it's okay to accept this. And and the kid's like six, five years old. And I think he was also talking about religion, like the different types of Buddhism and Hinduism. And so my buddy goes and he gets a son and he pulls his arm and he says, come on, we're leaving. We're not, we're not sitting here through this. And my first instinct was, oh man, that's kind of closed-minded, you know? Like he, it's better to have your child exposed to that type of thing. And then I talked to him about it, and, and luckily we're on a level where we can say those types of things to each other and not get offended. And he was like, yeah, but man, you don't get it. Like his, his little mind is not ready for that yet, you know, and I know that. And I know that it could be confusing to him. And here we are talking about the Bible every night and trying to, try to teach him what's important to us and our values. And then now he goes to Boy Scouts and he's like, oh, there's this other thing that, um, called Hinduism and Buddhism. Well, what, what's wrong with that? Why don't we do that instead? And it's just boils down to the fact that he's he's just not ready for it. He can't process it. He can't he can't dissect it in a way that allows him to only learn about something without being drawn to it. And so my whole point is that like I think a lot of times this phobia word it it just gets mixed up with people saying like mm, I'm just not ready for that or I just don't feel comfortable with that. And that's that's okay, right? Because if we rewind time and we go to San Francisco 100 years ago and we tried to force the transgender culture on them when they hadn't been around it, they hadn't seen it, they hadn't lived with it, 
and all of a sudden we try to we try to take something that they're not accustomed to and and put it on them and then when they don't accept it tell them that they're phobic i mean it it had its chance to evolve in san francisco it should have its chance to evolve in texas i mean would you allow your kids to be exposed to anything anything at all at any age no of course not we all get to pick the threshold i wouldn't leave a f- two-year-old with someone who's got piercings all over themselves and black lipstick and white makeup and for no other reason other than the fact that my child won't know how to deal with it. And that's one thing I always say is that there's a threshold. There's always a spectrum. There's The lines are not always clear. There's never just a line in the sand between this way or that way. Notice I said there's not always. Sometimes there is. But for most things, when it comes to public opinion and creating policy, there's a huge spectrum. People are so, so different, and everyone has their own set of priorities and values. I mean, just think about music. I was thinking the other day, like, two, the two most vastly different styles of music that I can think of. And let's just say we have death metal, and we have classical And you have people that really love both of those. And you have people that really hate both of those. But neither one is right and neither one is wrong. It's all art. And so people get to use their discretion. They get to pick and choose what they consume and what they don't. And that's okay. It's okay that a metalhead doesn't like Mozart. And it's okay that the classical music fan who loves Mozart doesn't like death metal. We can all be different. And the, the way that you work around that, the way you get around it, is to allow freedoms, allow people to choose whether they listen to death metal or Mozart. And when you do that, you will end up with some people who are uncomfortable. But the vast majority of people will appreciate the ability to choose. Sure, you, you might move next door to someone who blares metal and you love Mozart and you shouldn't have to hear their metal. Yep, that's the cost of freedom. The cost of freedom is the occasional thing not working out. But for the most part, it works out best for the consumer. And it doesn't just apply to musical taste or or preference in art. There is always a spectrum. Anyone who knows me well has heard me argue points. That's a big one of mine. There are some people who would be okay walking around without a respirator if there's a virus going around that has a 99% death rate. There's also people who don't want to leave their house without a mask when we have a virus going around that's got a less than 1% death rate. And we have everyone in between. And I'm of the mindset that it's better if we accommodate everyone or as many as possible without the fear that some of them might be making stupid decisions. Remember, you can always stay home. As I'm sure all of you are quite aware, I'm pretty into politics. I don't say that like, I'm a political junkie or whatever. I just, I pay attention to it. I like it. It's interesting to me. I don't claim to know more than anybody else. I just enjoy it. Mainly because behavior is interesting to me. And um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting to me 
to see how people act when they have power. I think that's why I like politics. And I think it's important to know the direction that your country is heading. It's important. I think the biggest thing that people forget or they choose not to acknowledge is that politicians are humans too. But the other day I heard something that was pretty interesting to me. And it made me think about the the varying levels of political understanding. And I don't mean like based on how smart you are, whether or not you can understand politics or political speak or whatever. I'm mainly referring to the the knowledge that's present or the knowledge someone has in regards to an event that happened in politics. So let's just say, for example, we hear that the president signed some executive order. And so we run around and make our assumptions and predict why we think they did it, and we analyze it and dissect it. Those are the people in the outermost circle. I would say the average person is kind of included in this circle. They're not privy to any knowledge from anyone else, just what the news tells them. Maybe some political analysts, but other than that, they don't have any input other than what the media feeds them. Then the next tier of people might have some inside knowledge and they might know someone who knows someone who heard something or speculates that a decision was made because of this. And I'm sure as you can predict, the closer you get to the person involved in these stories, the more information you have to be able to dissect the story and understand it. So here we are, you know, people from the global perspective making all these decisions and pointing fingers and accusing and blaming, and we have no clue what's really happening. All we know is the outcome. I want you to think about some stories that you know from your past that you've been a part of or or close people that you know have been a part of. And when I say stories, I mean like epic stories. Stories that end with phrases like, and then he walked in. And then the person's like, no way! Or they end with something like, and she never found out. And the person's like, no! So we all have a, a book of these stories, right? Some of them may even end with, and no one will ever know. These types of stories aren't that uncommon. Think about some that you know. Actually, I'd love to hear about them. These are stories that you typically use to one-up somebody. So if they've got a crazy story about a guy at a party that got something spilled on them, you've got one that's just a little bit better. And you keep those in your hip pocket, and you break them out when you need them. But my whole point is that everyone has those types of stories. Unless you lived under a rock your whole life, and you've never done anything fun or outside of your rock, then maybe you don't have the stories. Or maybe you do, they're just not that interesting. Nonetheless, my whole point is that those stories, those stories that end with, and they'll never know, those stories take place at the homeless level all the way up to the presidential level. So while we think we've got things figured out from a, from a two-mile perspective, we don't because there's so many other little things when we hear, yeah, the president signed an executive order, the true story may have been something like, 
well, yes, he signed the executive order because he knew if he didn't, then this person would release some information and then that would get back to this other person who in turn knows the leader of the auto manufacturers union. And if that gets out, if he tells the leaders of the railroad union, it's going to be a vicious cycle. And everyone's like, yeah, 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 I get it. I get it. Yeah. He's got to sign the executive order. He's got to. And then from here, from our perspective, we just know, well, the president signed an executive order in order to benefit blank. We don't know all the underlying pieces. So there's always underlying pieces. No matter how sure you think you are about something from this perspective, you know nothing. Whether you think there is voter fraud, you know nothing. Whether you think there wasn't voter fraud, you know nothing. Nobody knows anything. But yet everyone thinks they're an expert. I don't see how people can't recognize this. I can't say there was voter fraud. I can't say there was voter fraud. I can say, yes, the numbers don't add up in my opinion. Am I accusing someone of cheating? That's kind of far-fetched. It seems like it could be likely. But 50-something cases have been thrown out, so maybe it's not likely. I don't know. There's always another side to the story. There's always details that we don't know. This happens in every case, every single case. George Floyd, Bobbitt, what was his name, John Bobbitt, where Lorena cut off her husband's wiener? Like, what did he do to deserve to get that thing cut off? I mean, sure, she could be crazy and just wake up one night in the middle of the night and cut it off. But chances are he did something pretty bad to warrant that. All I ask is that we take in information, we process what we have. We don't fight and die on a hill of unknown information. That's part of the reason that we feel like our country is so, quote unquote, divided, because we take sides on these topics that in reality, we don't know jack crap about them. But we think we do, so we're willing to stand and fight about them when really we don't know the details. It's fun to speculate, but don't let it get you worked into a tizzy. With all that being said, I would like for you to make a prediction. Write it down, keep track of it, do something where you don't forget it or lose it. On whether or not... Abraham Lincoln's statues will be coming down within the near future, and if so, how long? My theory is yes. Everyone's statue is going to be under the gun who ever owned slaves or didn't do enough for the slaves. So we'll see. I think old Lincoln's got about five more years left in him. After that, he's going to be an evil, evil, evil person who didn't do enough for the slaves and the statues must come down. Seems unlikely now. Just you wait. Okay. If you ever hear me say, okay, it's kind of an inside joke that goes way back to my construction days. And what it is, is me mocking somebody, and no one specifically, just generally, a construction worker or a trade, uh, typically it's a painter who worked on a house, and then at the end, <laughs> we'd have to do a walkthrough with the, the homeowner and the wife. And these guys would normally refer to the wife as the lady. And so they kind of got in the habit of, we would do a walkthrough. You know, I would have the blue tape. I would put blue tape and everything that needed attention. And then I would go back through with the subcontractors and we'd rectify everything, get it ready for closing. And then every now and then there would be something big. 
And they're like, man, we don't want to do it. Because nobody's getting paid for all this little touch-up stuff. It's just part of the job. So it would be something kind of big for a, for a last-minute deal. And so the guys would encourage me because I could kind of take homeowners and not manipulate them, but kind of steer them in a path that made them understand why something wasn't perfect or outside of their expectations. Kind of come to a mutual agreement that we we're just going to leave it. I had a couple of different tactics of doing that, but I won't go into those here. So sometimes I would go back to the guys and I would say, Hey, I talked to the lady. She said, it's cool. We don't need to fix it. And they would be happy, you know? And so the response to that would be, okay. <laughs> so another thing they used to tell me was they would say like, they would encourage me to go back and maybe try to negotiate with the homeowner and try to get them to not make us do whatever it was we're talking about. So let's just say that like, they didn't like the way a window looked and they wanted it to be moved a little bit or painted or touched up or something. So they, they would tell me, and this translates to, hey, can you ask the homeowner if it's cool? Maybe she's cool with it. They would say, you ask it for the lady. Maybe she says, okay. <laughs> so then the okay just somehow morphed into, I, I just say it whenever I say okay. I don't know. I've got so much of my vernacular is based on construction Spanglish and slang that it's, it's kind of scary at times. That's what makes me Texan. That's going to wrap up today's show. I appreciate you listening. Life in Paradise podcast. This wraps up episode number 72. I never thought I would have 72 podcasts out there in internet land. But here we are. I appreciate your time listening to the Life in Paradise podcast. I encourage everyone to go out there. Stand up for what you believe in. Don't be afraid to speak your opinion. Be respectful to people, challenge things, question numbers. Remember, politicians are people too. And don't forget to train your dog. Thanks again for listening to Life in Paradise podcast. Keep it tranquilo. Standing